This morning, we are continuing our series on the seven giants. If you're visiting with us, I wonder if while I'm talking, if you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. We've been going through a series looking at what we've called the seven giants. And Chalky last week preached um, on the giant of hidden agenda. And the, and the whole thought behind of what we're doing with these seven giants is saying that in the world today, there is so much, um, uh, there's so many voices around us, there's so much stuff going on. How do I know when I'm looking at my future, when I'm looking at what God has for me in front of me, how do I know what, like, how do I take that thing on? You know, there's a lot of talk around um, inheritance and God's got a future plan. And I don't know if you're anything like me, you feel a little bit maybe, one day I'm going to stand in front of God and he's going to go, so John, like, what did you do with what I gave you? And I was like, Lord, like, like there, was a, there were large patches of my life where I felt clueless. I wasn't actually sure what was in front of me. I felt like I was just putting one foot in front of the next. And... What's really helpful is when we, the, the Bible speaks to us very clearly about those kind of moments. It talks about the children of Israel when they were about to go into the promised land, right? The promised land wasn't something that they had to try and work out. It wasn't something that they had to try and find. They didn't have to choose a promised land. God had given them their inheritance in front of them. But there were specific things that they had to do to take it. And there were specific things they had to overcome. There were these seven nations they had to overcome. And so, very practically, those seven nations kind of translate to seven things that we have to overcome. I think so often we're worried about finding the promised land or, or trying to be clever and, and work out what, what, what it is that God has for us in front of us, rather than being obedient to the things that God has called us to that we'll talk about. It's amazing. When I'm obedient to those things and take them on, my inheritance is almost guaranteed, right? God isn't sitting there like some psycho in heaven, like teasing us, you know, like, if you're a good, little bit more and a little bit less and you're playing hide and seek with us at all, he's a good father. And he's got incredible things for us, but he's also walking us on a journey so that when we do walk into whatever the inheritance looks like that he has for us, it's not gonna hurt us and it's not gonna be to the detriment of others. So this morning's giant that we're looking at um, is the giant of personal advantage. So Matthew chapter 19 um, from verse 23 it says, then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is possible, with, but impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? So two things quick on this, on this text. Firstly, the eye of the needle. It's not talking about an eye of a needle, like a needle needle, right? The eye of the needle was a small little door. So uh, back in those days, the city gates would be massive, right? And it took a lot of people to open the city gates. The reason they had to be so big was if you got attacked, these gates couldn't be like those doors that you see in all the cop movies that the guys just <laughs> kick the door and it can't be one of those because then everybody's in your city. So these gates are massive. These gates are not easy to move. It takes a lot of people to open them, right? It's a schlep to open them every day, but it's great when someone attacks you. But what it's not great is what happens if someone arrives late at night who wants to come into the city? Now you're a little bit stuffed, right? Because now we're going to wake everybody up to open the gates. So there's a small little door cut into that, which was heavily bolted from behind. So it was a tiny little door cut in that individuals could come in through. And they called that gate the eye of the needle. And so that's how people would enter and exit like sort of late at night. And what Jesus, so Jesus is talking in a term that they would have all understood. So he's saying to them, it's easier for a camel to go through that. 
And everyone knew, camels didn't go through that door, right? If you came with a camel, you made sure you arrived on time because you had to come through the big gate. That was designed for people to come in. And you couldn't be carrying much stuff when you went through that door. It was like, and it was specifically designed to be small, that as you walked through it, you couldn't like run through it with your sword or your spear or your machine gun or whatever you were carrying at the time. Like you had to sort of crouch to come through it and you were defenseless at that point so that they could defend against you. So that's the eye of the needle. But I love, like we're doing this devotional series through Matthew at the moment. If you haven't seen it, it's on Facebook. It's on our, um, on our podcast as well. We're going through the book of Matthew. And I've loved just the, maybe I just see the world a bit squonky, but I love the humor of here because it's like Peter at this moment, it's almost like up till now, like Jesus is, is talking and he's not anti-rich people at all. He's just saying, remember, everybody's got different things. People who are poor have got things that they need to fight against, but people who are rich also have things that they have to fight against. You've got to understand, we all have our own temptations. Don't just think because someone's rich, they've got it all together and everything's going to be epic. They've got their own temptations they've got to deal with. And so Peter's like, we left our fishing boats. Like they, had their, they were like entrepreneurs. They were small business owners. They had their ships. They went out. They did their thing. It's like we walked away from all of that to follow Jesus and we've got absolutely nothing. And so it's almost like Peter's a little bit resigned to that. And then Jesus says to them, um, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, right? Um, when the disciples heard about that, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, because it's like the light's gone for Peter, and he's like, hang on, we've left everything. Like, we don't have a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Are you trying to say, like, we've done something epic here by laying it? Laying? It's like Peter in his mind is like, his shares in what he chose in his life just quadrupled. He's like, we did it. Like, guys, we did it. This is so awesome. And he asks this question, and this is central to today's giant of personal advantage, right? We have left, left everything to follow you, Lord, so we're not like those guys. We're not like the rich guys. But then he betrays his heart. So he doesn't just go, we have left everything to follow you, Jesus, and it's worth it. Oh, Lord, it's so worth it. Just so cute. Not having anywhere to sleep and being out in the bushes and walking around <laughs> doing life and, and preaching and not knowing where we're going to lay our heads. It's, he doesn't do that. He goes, what then will there be for us? And in that moment, Peter reveals his heart with this giant of personal advantage because that's central to this whole understanding of it. What then will there be for us? What's in it for me? Right? I'm happy to do whatever you call, but I just want to settle one thing, Lord. What's in it for me? What do I get out of this? How do I benefit from whatever I'm about to put my hand to? And guys, I don't think we've ever lived, I mean, it's, all, it's endemic to the human condition, but I don't think we've ever lived in a time where cost benefit and looking at things is so much in front of us of like, Okay, so if I do this, what's in it for me? Relationships? Just energy output? Being part of a church? Even spiritual things? Praying, praying. I'll look at that in a, in a moment. Time with people, all that kind of stuff. So what does this giant look like on the ground? 
So we're going to quickly look at how does this, what does this giant look like, how does he cripple us, and how do we put a bullet between his eyes. So number one, what does this giant look like? I believe that this giant, more than any other of the giants, revels in orphan thinking. It's orphan thinking. Follow me for a second. The giant of personal advantage is like this. So some of you might know my story. I lived on the street for a couple of years. I'm not an orphan, but I lived like one. And one of the things you learn when you are out and you've separated yourself from life and you're trying to make a way yourself is this thing of, if I don't look out for me, no one else is going to. So what you do is you prepare to use, abuse, do whatever you can to whoever's in front of you for your best ends. Because you don't know tomorrow what is and isn't going to come. You might go, oh, but John, you know, great for you. You were particularly like an unhelpful, scaly person. So you had to walk your journey, but I'm different. But friends, when I begin to look at my life, and I take, an, take honest stock of my life, that often thinking of what am I going to get out of things? Can I just trust in this relationship or am I going to try and grab from this relationship because I don't know when it's going to end? I see it in business so often, and it, it saddens me. You know, you talk to guys who do business, and they, especially in, in this day and age of contracts and, and tenders and all this kind of stuff in our country, where guys give no thought to their reputation, they give no thought to the future, they just see one contract in front of them, and they will use, abuse, grab, do whatever they can for this one thing, boom or bust mentality, integrity gone, you know, um, just testimony gone, I grabbed it, but what at the end of that? What, what happens if another one doesn't come? So I need to grab it for everything it is. Relationships with people, like spiritual vampires, people running around sucking the life out of people because it's just, I just wanna take, I wanna take. I'm, and at the heart of it, it's this orphan who's terrified of, well, what, what happens if this isn't around anymore tomorrow? So I need to grab everything I can grab today. Jesus promises us in Matthew 28, he says, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, right? I've given you all authority in heaven and earth. But then he promises us this because he knows what's inside of our hearts apart from him. Surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Friends, if I don't, have, you know, I don't wanna get to, anyway, let's just talk about the giant for a second. So that's the first thing. Secondly, this giant sees people as a means to an end, Right? Relationships are a means to an end. Relationships aren't an end in themselves. My marriage is the means of me being happy or the means of me going forward or my business is a means to my joy or means to my... Instead of understanding that what God has given us is an end in itself because he's the end in itself and every good and perfect gift comes from him. And so I don't have to keep leveraging every situation for my own benefit, for my own advantage. People are only useful and meaningful to us in so long as they earn their keep. And what ends up happening is, yeah, and it's sort of more implicit than explicit. We don't say it outwardly, but it's just ticking around inside of our hearts. The third thing is, this giant comes, and this is a, this is a big one. The giant constantly asks us that if God is so good, then why doesn't he do as we say? Why doesn't he answer our prayers the way we've asked him to? If he is so good. Because there's that little hook of personal advantage in the prayer, right? God, do as I say, or else. You know, sitting there threatening heaven. Gabriel's looking over the parapet of heaven going, check at this idiot, like calls other angels. Check this guy, what he like, does he even know what he... 
we're trying to leverage things. We mask our demands as prayers. Look what happened with Jesus in Matthew chapter four. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you that they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Because it can seem so spiritual what the devil's doing here. But what he's trying to do is get Jesus to try and leverage his father. He's saying if. And that's the big problem with it. This giant of personal advantage causes us or tries to demand that we make God prove himself to us the whole time. Prove that you love me. Prove that you love me. If, if you really love me, you do this. If God really loved you, he'd do that for you. And so he begins to put this like axe at the foot of our, the foundation of our relationship with God. Instead of Jesus just going, well, I don't have to put my father to the test. You know why? Because just before I wandered out here into the desert to come have my ding dong with you, as I came up out of the water, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And friends, me, I'm not, I'm not the world's most secure person in the whole. I'm just, you know, I'm trying to be as open and vulnerable as possible. If I don't live with that voice in my ears, guys, I'll go to bits. I have to know that God is for me. I have to know that he's gone ahead of me. Because if I don't, this thing, right, it gets in there before you know it. I believe much of today's preaching even is the gospel of personal advantage. I hear so many sermons where the, where the preacher feels like he has to dangle a carrot of God's going to bless you, he's going to do this for you, he's going to do that for you, if you do this, he'll do that. Feels like he has to throw the carrot into the sermon to grab it because this personal advantage giant has taken so hold of our hearts, he has to throw a carrot in there to force our obedience, almost to dangle, to get us to move towards our obedience without underlining the fact that Jesus has already done everything for us. Friend, what else does he have to do? Why do we have to keep dangling a carrot as preachers? If you do this, God will do this. You know? God is good. Anyway, but it's, it's a thing. It's interesting how um, preaching without that carrot in it can seem so old school. It feels almost irrelevant. Like, tell me this week, if I do this, what I will get out of it. And friends, that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Just feel like we need to say that. So that's the first thing. What does he look like? Everyone looks so happy. How are we doing? We're okay? Like, we're... Ugh, I feel like he just kicked me in the nose. Right. <laughs> Right, number two. So what does this giant look like? Number two, well, how does he cripple us? How does this giant cripple us? I was actually sharing with the dads at this night away. It's not a preaching moment, just in case. We were just sitting around the fire, and I was like, guys, when I was reading this, whatever, and I shared it with him, because this has become so meaningful, this story to me. I read it in our devotional this week. Matthew 8, 28, talking about Jesus. He just calmed the storm. Everyone, you know, everything's happened. It's amazing. They land on the other side of the lake in a region called Gadara. And we pick it up in verse 28 of Matthew chapter eight. When Jesus arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. Like this is a scene out of the exorcist, right? How they come, like 
These weren't just demon, these demon-possessed guys lived in tombs. I don't, like, they probably like had skulls on a, like, I, I fully checked skulls on a staff and, and like long hair, like, it's amazing. And they were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into those herd of pigs. He said to them, go. And so they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off and went into the town and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. And guys, two things when I was reading this hit me like a steam train. I actually didn't have this as part of my sermon at all. I had prepped um, a week ago. And when I read this, I was like, it's exactly this thing, this this story kind of underlines this thing of personal advantage completely of how this giant works or how he cripples us. And the first thing is this. We forget this. And, and this is what he tries to keep us from. Accomplishing the will of the kingdom. And this is probably the most unpopular statement in the world at the moment. But it's, unfortunately, it's true. When Jesus said to us what it would cost to follow him, he said it would cost us everything. There is always a cost, right, in accomplishing the will of the kingdom. When the kingdom goes forward, it's going to cost. Now, it doesn't always cost money, and it doesn't always cost time, and it doesn't always cost energy and emotion and whatever, but it's going to cost something because there's multiple different forms of currencies in our lives, right? Time, energy, thought, space, emotion, all, that diff- all different types of currencies that we have flowing in, and we have to tend to be able to flow out. And so it's always going to cost something. And this giant sits there and he's like, let's do the sums. Like this accountant. Let's do the math. It's not worth doing this because it comes at your disadvantage. It comes at, he wouldn't say your because he's sort of a relational giant, if you like. It comes at our disadvantage, you know. (laughs) We shouldn't do this. This isn't good for us. So we sit there like Gollum talking about ourselves in the third person, right? <laughs> Let's look at these people here. They didn't want these psychos with their skulls on staves and long hair and freaking their kids out. Kids can't go play because they get terrified. Mom and dad, those crazy oaks came running out of the tombs. Ah, we all had to come home. They were sick of being beat up. Every time they went to Jerusalem, they had to go past this place. You're just waiting for like this loon. They didn't want... They didn't particularly want the kingdom of God established, right? They didn't really particularly want these guys to be set free for um, those guys' sake. They just didn't want that stuff to happen anymore. They wanted this problem gone, right? They didn't want these guys demon-possessed anymore. They wanted these guys not like that. But they didn't want there to be a cost involved to it. They wanted it just to happen for free. They wanted the Ghostbusters to come walking in there with their tubes and they're, you're going to call, and then all the demons run away and then the guys are like, oh, free, yay, and then the guys start a bakery in town and start selling pasties. That's what their dream was for these two guys who lived in the tombs. But remember, always as the kingdom has advanced, there's a cost, and it cost them the pigs. It cost the whole town because that herd of pigs, right, you would have one or two guys who were pig herds, pig version of shepherds. I don't know if they're called pig herds, probably. 
Those guys would be, on behalf of the town, they would be looking after those pigs. And those pigs would belong to the whole town. Or different pigs in the thing would belong to people in the town. That town lost a sizable chunk of their inheritance and of their livelihood when those pigs ran down the hill and jumped in the water. And instead of going, yay, we can go to Jerusalem now and we don't get beat up. And yay, our kids can go play outside. All they saw was the pigs are dead and they come to Jesus and it says, when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. And friends, when we live with this giant of personal advantage, as soon as that cost hits us in our heart, our response so often is, just secretly and quietly in our heart, we want to plead with Jesus to leave the region. Sometimes it's a Christian friend who's been honest with us, calling us out on something. And it feels like it's not to my personal advantage. And so nowadays on Facebook, we'll plead with them to leave the region, but it's not quite as nicely done as that. Maybe it's done over a text message. Because we don't sit face to face with people anymore, right? And that's how this giant to personal advantage, he ends up keeping our world small. He's totally at odds with paying this cost, constantly asking the question, what's in it for me? And so what it does for me is it keeps the things in my world that are threatening me at the edges of my world, it keeps them there so it makes my world small. Like for that town, their borders were small because of those people, those loonies who were sitting there in the tombs. But also what it does is it stops us from giving a damn about others because I'm constantly running that filter of do I love through how much is it going to cost me to love? And then it's just not worth it. And the second thing is this. Not only does it keep our world small like that, but it keeps us from being challenged and growing myself here. What on earth were Jews doing raising pigs in the first place? They weren't supposed to be. They weren't supposed to be pigs there. When I was in Israel a few years ago, well, back in the day, a few long, uh, long years ago now, um, <laughs> So there's a law in Israel, you're not, allowed to raise, you're not allowed to raise pigs on the land. So whenever you find a pig farm in Israel, they're all up on platforms. They, build, they literally build a giant platform and then the pigs are raised on the platform. Like, it's like just wangling the angle, right? That's all it is. It's trying to find a loophole. And what Jesus does, and this is, this is the thing. Every situation I'm in, Jesus is looking for an opportunity and he's working in me to transform me and make me more like himself and to set me free. God's always working to transform me into the image of Jesus, right? There's a cost involved in it. And so when Jesus arrives, everybody else looks and goes, there's a bunch of, there's two crazy oaks in the tombs. That's the problem. And Jesus goes, no, there's two problems here. There's a bunch of crazy guys in the tombs and there's a whole town that's being disobedient with their pigs because Jesus sees to the hearts of the matter. I live my life looking at everybody else going, oh, I can check some grave people in your tombs and I can check some scaly people in your life and I can check your bad attitudes. And Jesus is looking at the herd of pigs that's busy feeding in my heart. And Jesus will often use that situation to deal with this situation. And that's exactly what he does here. So it's a two-for-one special for the town that they weren't really expecting. It was the streetwise two that nobody wanted because the second piece of chicken disappeared into the lake and drowned and it was gone. And friends, this giant of personal advantage does exactly that. 
He keeps us from being confronted by Jesus over the issues that we're dealing with in our hearts. And so we mollycoddle them and we care for them and we try and protect those things. But Jesus wants to deal with these things. Bend the law a little bit. Jesus comes in, he comes to work and he sets all the people free. The town and the demoniacs in the tomb. And the end of it was, they welcomed Jesus in. They said, Lord, thank you just for coming and no. Just like the Pharisees, just like everybody else, they saw what they stood to lose. They, saw, they couldn't see what they stood to gain. And so they pleaded with him to leave their region. I'm not saying that, just maybe a little caveat on the side. Just to those of us, when we look at our lives, I'm not talking about being wise. I think it's incredibly important for us as, to look at our families, to look at our resources, look at our worlds, and be wise about what we put our hands to, in terms of energy and that kind of stuff, and love, and because we are finite, right? We receive from God. There's nothing wrong with being wise about how I allocate my life. I'm not saying we should just run out and pour ourselves out and just allow ourselves to be used and abused by every Tom, Dick, and Harry in our quest to not be fighting for personal advantage. I think we should be incredibly wise with our time. You know, parents' time with kids, husbands' time with wives. The way we treat our staff in our, in our businesses, all the different things that we're doing, we should be wise about it. But the issue comes down to this. It's when the question comes in, what's in it for me? Not, how do I best love them? How do I best lead them? So my filter is love, my filter's not this giant of personal advantage working on the inside. He's the giant of ultimate isolation. He keeps us chained to our orphaned hearts, as we mentioned above. And so we cannot learn to trust God because we never ever step out in any form of trying to trust God. Because if we did, like scripture says, we would taste and see that God is good. We'd be like, wow, what he says is true. That's how faith is built, little bit by little bit. You've got to step out the boats a little bit. You've got to walk on the eggs, right? Inability to trust God and the inability to trust others. And what it does is it gives birth to this constant anxiety and restlessness in our hearts because I'm trying to ang wangle and angle every situation to my own advantage. We end up becoming resistant to the workings of God in our heart. I'm not going to end it there, don't worry. That's, so this is where we're at, guys. This, this is very real stuff that we've been talking about for this last little boss. So as we finish... How do we deal with this thing? There's three really, really simple ways that we deal with this, but all of them, yeah, they require constant attention. Something I've come to see with, as, as I walk out my Christian life is nothing happens by accident. We spoke a little bit about Peter walking on the water. Peter, <laughs> Jesus didn't go, hey guys, like, come to me. And then Peter, like John pushed Peter, then he fell out the boat, and so he had no choice, but then he got up and he's flipping, Dude, like, oh, wow. I know Kung Fu. And then, like, he's able, it didn't happen like that at all. Like, he had to, like, like, what do you think, it, what do you think everyone in the boat was thinking? Like, there goes Peter again. He's just, he's just pretending. I wonder if Peter started by just sort of threatening to see if Jesus would go, no, it's okay. You know when you, you start but you don't really mean to do it. You're just trying to look like you're doing it. 
So Peter starts to walk towards the edge of the boat. And all the, the other disciples are like, he always does this. He always does this. And then Peter gets in the boat. He's waiting for Jesus to go, Peter, I get it. You've shown me your love. You've shown me your faith. Like his one leg goes over. The, the, the storm's still going on. There's all this stuff. One leg over and Jesus is just looking at him. At some stage, he had to put his other leg over the side and go for a walk. And this giant of personal advantage is like, don't do it. Just don't. It's not worth it. Do you know what you stand to lose? What's in it for you? Jesus is already walking on the water, right? You don't have to. He did it all for you, which is so close to the truth. Jesus did it all for us. He died for us. He laid his life down for us. He's given us grace. He's given us forgiveness. But then he says, come and walk with me in what I've done. Die to yourself. Lay down your life. Live loving others. All these wonderful things. Anyway, okay, number three, how do we deal with this giant? How do we put him to bed with a bullet? Right, so number one, how do we deal with this giant? I don't believe it's possible to deal with this giant without a healthy understanding of the sinful state of my heart and my need for a savior. Jeremiah 17, 9, which is not 20, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, which is the one we all like to quote, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper. We spoke about that last week or a couple of weeks ago. Jeremiah also said this, right, of Mr. Encouraging Jeremiah, and I have never seen this one on someone's fridge, actually. I've looked, but it's never been there. The heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9. <laughs> the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I just... <laughs> Just haven't, haven't seen it on a bumper sticker, never checked it on the front of one of those books that you buy at the Christian bookstore, you're looking, you don't know what to get for someone, so you just get them like a Christian, like devotional book on the front. The heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? But it's true. And friends, I believe that unless I have a true understanding of this, that what Jesus did for me at Calvary was instant. It was momentary. Right? It was in the moment, 100%. He set me free, forgave me everything. Justified. But then this process of what Scripture calls sanctification now, of him working in me. I need Jesus each day as much as I needed him. That day I first bowed my knee to him when I got saved. I don't need him less. I don't need him any less today than I needed him then. And the problem is, it's that thinking of, if I forget that, then all of a sudden now I'm sort of like the finished product. And so I'm like, okay, Lord, you did that for me then. But you know, brownie points wear off. So what are you going to do for me today? Prove yourself to me. What's in it for me? And I'm not talking about walking around, you know, sackcloth and ashes, like I'm such a sinner. I'm just... But friends, I need Jesus Christ every single day. I know that in myself, my heart is desperately sick. I know that inside of me, no good thing lives. Outside of him. And it sorts this giant out at inception. Because Jesus is good to me each day. So that's the second. So the first one is just this understanding of that. 
Because it, it, there's, from that point, it, it takes us to the second thing that I, I need to know. Firstly, my heart is desperately sick, but the second thing is that I live in a, in a state of gratefulness and thankfulness to Jesus for what he's done. I keep reminding myself of the good works of God. If you go read through the pages of scripture, the number of times it's said, when David writes, particularly in the Psalms, he reminds himself, he speaks to himself, to his heart, of the good things that God has done for him. He keeps reminding himself of it. We have to keep reminding ourselves of the good things God has done because there's so much else going on in the world around us, we can lose sight of them. And not just to move past that. You know, Friday night, guys, like, I know I keep referring to, back to when this church was planted and whatever, but I, I still, like, this church is a miracle to us because it wasn't always like this. I'm sitting around the fire and, you know, <laughs> my guy's sitting there, he's like blood pouring down his face, he's got these <laughs> steri strips there. And we're just sitting and we're talking and we're going from like, just talking about rubbish dad stuff to talking about the Bible a little bit, talking about work, talking about all kinds of stuff. And I just, while we were talking, I sat back and I'm like, how did this happen? How did, like, we hear, like, it's just, it, it blows my mind that God has done something so awesome. And that gratefulness, in that moment, I'm not asking Jesus to prove himself to me at all. I'm just like, flap, check what he did. This is amazing. And it sorts out that giant of personal advantages that's looking to leverage. I don't have to leverage that situation. Can just enjoy being there. Wow, God, thank you. Thank you for everything you've done. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord, not for man. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. It's very interesting. It's, it's one of the only times in Scripture where Jesus isn't put in the middle. It doesn't say the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Christ is trying to say this. You have a king in heaven. You are doing everything for that king. Just understand. Everything you do is for him. And he knows you. And he's got an inheritance waiting for you. Be grateful. Be thankful. You are at the greatest advantage possible to you as a human being. Jesus has done every single thing for us. This personal advantage giant is the giant of the entitled. I deserve it. I deserve God to open this door for me. I deserve God to do this stuff. I deserve, I deserve nothing, but he has given me everything and I live in that space. And so when I present my requests to him, I come to him and I go, God, I can't see everything. I don't know what the future looks like. I don't have it all together. Maybe even my life at the moment isn't quite how I thought it would turn out but I'm just so grateful that you're here and I know that you've got it in your hands. So Lord, whatever you need, whatever you want, Lord, I'm praying for this thing, but it's in your hands. How you choose to answer is up to you. That's not a lack of faith because I'm trusting God for those things. Big time, I'm trusting for a hope in a future, but it's in his hands. And then lastly, living in the security. Remember that orphan thing I spoke about up front? Living in the security of God as our father. Matthew chapter seven. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everybody who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, your father, your father who is in heaven, 
give good things to those who ask him. Friends, I know some of us have got a squonky picture of our Father. We'll be doing a preaching series later in the year. We'll be looking at Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But you have a good Father in heaven. You aren't out there in your world with your machete just trying to make it happen. And if you don't, it's all going to fall down. Yes, we work hard. But we work hard because we are because we are sons and daughters of God, because he has given us a hope and a future. We live within the bounds of that. It's so easy to look at situations and just shut God out of it and just go, I'm gonna do this myself. I'm gonna make a way. I'm gonna make a plan. And we begin to leverage situations, people and all that kind of stuff. So healthy understanding of the sinful state of my heart, gratefulness and thankfulness and living in the security of God as our Father. I'd love to pray for us if I can. I am... it's been quite sobering, and I think next week, and Nades is preaching, and the giants are remaining undisturbed. Just want my life to look like this. Like, there's just no angle to run away from this stuff. But what I love is God wants to come, and he wants to set us free, guys. If we are going to do the stuff that God has called us to, if we, if we are going to love and change the world and be able to represent Jesus right to the world, it can't be with a hook in it. Jesus loved us this way. Just like this. He expected nothing in return for salvation. After the fact, he, told, he tells us and he points out to us that it's going to cost us everything because we need to die. And it's not like some dodgy business deal. But what he's trying to say is if you keep trying to live to yourself, you're going to keep living in the death that you had. I'll give you everything. Life. Let's land it there. Let me pray. Thank you so much for joining us. You might be asking yourself the question, how can I take this further? Firstly, you can send us your contact details to cindy at centerchurch.co.za where we can include you in our online connect groups and you can receive our daily devotional. Secondly, you can hop on our website where you can access previous sermons and find out more about who we are at Center Church. Thirdly, if you consider yourself as part of Centre Church, we want to thank you so much for your ongoing financial partnership. The banking details are on the website. Thank you so much for joining us and hope you have an amazing Sunday.